We are in James chapter 2. And I guess I'll sort of apologize in this sense that we're going to move fastly, quickly through James. We're not going to dawdle. Okay? And so that, that may at certain times make you feel like, wow, um, there's far more going on here than he has time to talk about. But uh, I don't know. I thought this would be a good summer series. So get us back into Genesis come the fall. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not the ones, are not, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who has shown no mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open our ears, that we may hear your word this morning, that we may listen to what it says. Soften our hearts, that they might be fertile ground, so that we might believe your word this morning. Renew your image in us, so that we might obey your word this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who saves sinners and sanctifies saints. Amen. When I got up in the morning, I did not know what was going to happen to me the rest of the day. And so, in fact, I was ill-prepared for what would, be, what would unfold that day. I was living in Orlando, but I had an internship at a church in Lakeland, Florida, which is about an hour away from where I lived. I had to arise early. I figured, no one's going to be in the office today. I'm going to leave before people come. So why should I bother wasting time shaving? So I was unshaven. I was tired, and I wasn't thinking very well, and so I left the house without putting my belt on. So I was beltless. It was one of those few days that was a little damp, and so I still had my Timberland boots from my days in New England, and it was so rare that I got to wear them that I decided I'm going to wear my Timbies. 
I had these big clunky boots on. I'm at my office in Lakeland, Florida, when the phone rings. And I pick it up, and it's one of the members of a search committee in Winter Haven, Florida, that wants to talk to me. When I had met with the committee, there was one elder that had not met with me at that point in time, and today was the day that he was available to meet with me. <laughs> My unshaven, unbelted, big-booted self had to drive to Winter Haven to meet this person for the first time with a job on the line. It was awesome, I tell you. And to make matters worse, I was chewing gum. And if you know me, I never chew gum. <laughs> I think I was afraid that I had bad breath or something. I, th I think I, I pilfered gum from somebody. And so here I am walking into this church building, chewing gum, unshaved, without a belt on my pants, and big boots for an interview that would change the course of my life. And I thank God to this day that Lee Ackert did not hold all of that against me. <laughs> That he looked beyond these things, okay? I made a pathetic first impression to this man, and I'm glad that he was gracious. Our big idea this morning is that faith and grace forsake favoritism, and my experience with Lee Eckert will play into this. Faith actually looks beyond our earthly circumstances. That's really the point of what we see in verses 1 through 7, what's really kind of going on here, because James is about to apply part of what he said to us last week about being doers, not just hearers of the word. And there was a particular way in which I imagine this church that he was writing to, this group of believers, was stumbling. There was a problem when they gathered together. And he's about to address it. But notice the gentleness. I mean, he's harsh, he's direct, he's to the point, and yet he continues to, to be soft with them. My brothers... He says, he says later on, my beloved brothers. Okay, so even though he's being harsh and to the point, there's also a gentleness that is at work here. He's not condemning them, but he's instructing and correcting them. So he considers these people to be his brothers. And the problem was partiality. Kind of a strange word. It's actually a compound word in the Greek. Um, you, you kind of have the word face, and then you have the word receive, and they stuck them together, and it really sounds strange. And so it, it has this, it's literally to receive with the face or to judge people on the basis of outward appearance, of what you see, what is apparent to us. Now, this is really quite contrary to what God does. We see in 1 Samuel 16, okay, the prophet Samuel, the priest and prophet Samuel, is going to anoint a new king. He comes to the family of David, and he's looking at all of David's older brothers, and he's saying, oh, that's going to be a good one. And God says, no, that's not the guy. And what God says to Samuel, in the midst of this, he says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so what favoritism does is it looks on the outward appearance. It does not try to perceive what's going on in the heart. 
by faith, we are to move beyond the outward appearance and to try and gauge what is the heart of a person. And so favoritism, as James says here, is contrary to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is contrary partially because we see the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here he is called the Lord of glory. This is who he really is, but how did he appear to everybody else? During his earthly ministry, did he look like a Lord of glory? Did he look like someone that we should all worship? Did he look like someone we should all obey? No, he came in a very mean-looking appearance, a very austere-looking appearance. He was poor. He looked nothing like a Lord of glory, anything but. And yet, and so as a result of that, many people paid him no mind. They treated him as something other than the Lord of glory. And so we see this principle there, and James is reminding them of this. There are people that, to your appearance, look insignificant, but they are very significant in God's eyes. But he warns them against paying attention to the people who look significance. He talks of it's interesting, a little chiasm that takes place there, but he brings up the rich man and he says, theoretically, and I imagine this was not theoretical, okay, two people come in through the door. One wearing gold rings, not wedding rings, okay, the, the rings that he's talking about probably had to do with a, the rather um, elite equestrian class, okay? These were rich people. And if, we were, if he was writing, not in, in Greek, but he was writing in, say, uh, Italian, a cavallero would come in. A rich man, a horseman, okay? The equestrian class. Rich man comes in, very nice clothing. Poor man comes in. The idea of the poor man is someone who is dependent upon other people. Okay, They do not have the means to make it day to day. And so it came from the root of one who begs, but it goes beyond that. It doesn't necessarily mean a beggar, but it means someone who's relatively destitute. They have what they need for today, but they don't have anything for tomorrow. This person who comes in, his clothes are rather shabby. They're not bright and clean. They're not radiant like the rich man, precisely because he has usually one pair of clothes that he uses for everything. And so these two people walk in. One is resplendent, so to speak, in an earthly form of glory, and the other looks rather shabby. May not be well cleansed. May smell a little bit. Okay. On the on the basis of this earthly appearance, what happens so often is that the rich man gets a nice seat, and the poor man is told to stand in the back or to sit at someone's feet. That's partiality. That's treating people on the basis of an external thing that has no bearing ultimately upon their heart. It does, their outward appearance says nothing about their hearts, and he gets to that because he reminds them. Okay? That they're failing to see the truth behind the glitz and the grossness. This is not just evil. I mean, stupid. This is rather evil. God's purposes tell a very different tale. He reminds them, don't you know that the poor in this world, people who's, who's, who have no wealth, he says, and he's not speaking, he's speaking in what sounds like a absolute terms, but he's not really doing absolute terms. But the poor in this world, God has chosen them to be rich in faith. And so while they may be poor in terms of money, often these people are rich 
in faith. Shouldn't we rather treat them on the basis of their faith in the richness of it as opposed to the destitute character of their checkbook? He's reminding them that God does not choose people for salvation based on merit or on influence. That wealth is not a sign of God's favor. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in in chapter 1, because they were caught up in the outward appearance as well. And he says, don't I have to remind you that not many of you were wealthy? Not many of you were wise? Not many of you were? Okay, that means that most of the people were not wise. Most of the people were not wealthy, but some of them were. Okay, we can't, the reason why we can't make this statement that James has absolute is because there are rich people in the kingdom, including people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, okay? So we can't make it an absolute statement. So, God does something in the heart that we need to recognize in how we respond to other people. James is speaking completely in, in step with Jesus, for in Luke 16, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. They're heirs of the kingdom. There is a richness that awaits them that will far surpass earthly wealth. Something that will not be destroyed by time or moths or rust. Live in light of that, he says. Look at that. Interestingly enough, this is the second time he is, he used that phrase um, that God has promised to those that love him. What was the first thing that was promised to them? The crown of life. And now, the kingdom. Okay? Nice little love James and what he does. But he gets back to the rich. He says, you know, really, if you want to, want to look at what the rich do, look at their heart, what do they do? It's a very different tale. Because it was the rich who often oppressed the poor. The people in the church knew this and recognized this. He says, aren't they the ones who oppress you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? This favoritism was not born of faith. but Instead, it was born of fear and greed. I wanted to get into the good graces of the rich people. That good stuff might come to them instead of bad stuff. I fear Joseph this week learned a little bit about how the rich can oppress because suddenly all the dynamics and the time frame of his grant got changed without any notification. Boom. Done. Without thinking about how it affected anyone else. Boom. Done. Our brother needs your prayers. The rich, in addition to oppressing others, often blaspheme God, which is, what does that word mean? It means to injure one's reputation. It means to defame. It means to revile. It means to mock. They were mocking Jesus, often these rich people were. Let's think about the rich for a moment. In a situation that's uh, not ours, but similar to theirs, Scotland. We have some Scottish people here, some Scottish heritage. I was amazed. I, I can't remember where I read this, so I looked it up online and got, the, got it again in, from a different context. 
But in 1837, okay, 50% of the land of Scotland was owned by 118 people. They still operated under a feudal system where the elite class owned just about everything and everyone else rented from them. And if they decided they didn't want to rent to you anymore, too bad. You were dispossessed of your house. Now, latest figures have, that that number of 118 people has skyrocketed to 608. (laughs) 608 people own all of Scotland. Imagine if 608 people owned all of Arizona. Or half of Arizona, sorry. Imagine that. The abuses that could take place. And in fact, we see that the abuses in Scotland took place and affected the church. That the idea of patronage, where the rich landowner would try to exert all of his power and influence to get the pastor he wanted. They they had gone beyond Presbyterian form of government and it was really run by the rich which is why the seceders pulled out of the Church of of Scotland and formed the Associate Presbyterian Church in Scotland. And so that happens. The rich can oppress the church as well as the poor. And so blaspheme God. And so faith views people from God's perspective, not their earthly circumstances. So we have faith looking beyond earthly circumstances, but we also see that faith forsakes favoritism, particularly as law-breaking. Faith forsakes favoritism as law-breaking, verses 8 through 11. Ultimately, this is not a, a, a rich-poor issue. This is a love issue. And this love issue takes many forms in addition to rich and poor. But the rich and poor thing hasn't gone away. We see class warfare played all the time in the press and by politicians of both sides. Okay? So that's still at work. In schools, don't you, don't we still have the cliques? I mean, I'm a product of the public school system. That probably explains a lot of things about me. Okay? But, you know, there were the, there were the geeks and there were the jocks and there were, then there were the potheads. And then there were a couple of people like me who kind of didn't really belong to any of those things. All right? Although some of you might quibble with the geek part. I don't know. But um, <laughs> definitely wasn't a jock. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there are all these cliques that would operate within the schools, and I'm pretty sure it's the same way now. It takes place in the form of racism, thinking that certain people are allowed in a church based primarily on the color of their skin or their ethnic heritage. It can take place in the form of politics, where you make your friends or you know, based on their political views. I'm glad there's diversity of political views in this room. You know? That's a good thing. We can talk about these things. They can take place in dating. Yeah, guys, you. You know, I was there once. Well, you want to date the pretty girl. You might date the average girl, but you have no interest in dating the below average girl. That's all based on appearances. Beauty is fleeting. Charm is deceitful. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. I remember when I was a teenager and uh, 
working, and there was one girl I really liked. And then for some weird reason, one day I was like, I was walking up behind her and she had jeans on. I was like, oh, is she pretty enough for me? How stupid. And so that is that proverb is one that I had to memorize as a young Christian man. And I had to remind myself of that often. That what pleases my eye now is not what's really important. But that she fears the Lord is what is important. That goes beyond dating. In churches, we can play partiality in terms of music. Churches, you know, we, we do this all the time. You know, the, sometimes churches segregate populations of their church, of their congregation based on their musical preference. You know, here's the traditional service, and here's the mixed service, and here's the, you know, here's the, the contemporary service, so to speak. They can, they can segregate people based on stage of life. And so what that does is that sort of reinforces these differences such that someone thinks, I don't have anything to learn by my, from my elder. And I do. It, th- it thinks that it, it sort of creates something that is very different from what we see in Titus 2, where the different generations are at work in one another's lives. That's part of the beauty of a small church. All you have is each other. You know? We can't have five different adult Sunday school classes. We sit together and we learn from each other. We learn with each other. We experience um, things that we wouldn't ordinarily experience. Okay, But churches can, can do this sort of partiality. Favoritism, as I said, is ultimately a violation of the royal law or the kingdom, the kingdom law of love. That's what it boils down to. It is a not caring about others. That is the ultimate violation. Favoritism ultimately says that there are people that I will treat well. And there are people that I will not treat well. And I am making that based on my own criteria and upon their earthly appearance in some way, shape, or form. And so favoritism may seem to us like a rather insignificant sin precisely because it can be so commonplace and it doesn't look so grievous, does it? No, it doesn't look all that bad to us. But James provides a stark warning to them. He says, to fail or to stumble at only one point, which if we were to grade on a curve, wouldn't be too bad. But he says, when we fail at even one point, we are accountable for all of it. We are guilty of breaking all of it because all of the laws were given by the same lawgiver. And so we're breaking, we're not breaking individual laws like we tend to think of. Okay. Well, you know, I broke the speed limit today, but I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't steal from anybody. James says, same guy gave them all. You're violating his authority when you break any of them and therefore you are a lawbreaker. That's hard for us to grasp. It is so contrary to how we think. And yet, this is what James wants us to recognize. That the same one who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. And we can't think that we're okay just because we don't do one of the bad ones. 
but we're all in this, this, we're all guilty of these things. They were minimizing their sin. And we tend to do the same thing. Treating certain sins as insignificant because they don't seem as dangerous or deadly from our perspective. And so we need to recognize the function of things like favoritism in our lives. We need to see where it's at work. Okay? And we need to learn to say no to it. Or, uh, that's, how James, that's how Paul says it in Titus 2, but how he says it in Romans is to put it to death by the power of the Spirit. We need to see it for what it is, and by the grace of God, begin to say no to it, to put it to death, to, let it, to, to minimize its hold upon us, and begin to make choices based upon the heart of the other person, not the outward appearance of that other person. Okay? But something is even greater going on here, I think. Romans 2. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When we treat sin lightly, as he was talking about with the Romans, what happens is we become like the world, and the Gentiles or the unbelievers begin to blaspheme God because of our inconsistent life. We participate in their sin. We initiate, we instigate their blasphemy by our inconsistent lifestyle at times. So faith recognizes favoritism as sin but it puts it to death in the power of the Spirit. So we have faith looking beyond earthly circumstances, faith forsaking favoritism as law-breaking, and lastly, we have faith forsakes favoritism for mercy. Verses 12 and 13. We are, as he says, to speak and act. He's addressing all of our outward behavior, which is governed by our hearts. We're to talk to one another and act with one another on the basis of something different than favoritism. Favoritism, again, judging people on appearance. It's superficial. It's petty judgment. I remember high school. That was when Jordash jeans. Anyone remember Jordash? Is Jordash even around anymore? Right? All the in chicks were wearing Jordash jeans. And all the in guys were wearing Levi's. So I had my Levi's on, and I still wasn't in. <laughs> okay, but I, I remember, you know, Wranglers. Mm-mm. Those aren't cool enough. Okay, it seems petty. It is petty, but it's a far deeper problem than just. The, it, it, it's a deeper problem in our hearts. We he says to them, remember that you too will be judged. You who are judging other people on these superficial things, remember that you too will be judged, but not on superficial things. You'll be judged by the law of liberty. Far more important as to whether or not you are wearing the right jeans, or you cheer for the right team, or you voted for the right guy, or whatever. Your car is nice enough. You have the right kind of car. 
Okay, God's law, not cultural whims. Paul reminds uh, the Corinthians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. From now on, therefore, in light of that reality, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. There's a connection, I believe, in 2 Corinthians 5 there. They had received grace, and because they had received grace, they should show grace and mercy to others. One of the pastors I know in um, Florida has triplets, and I, I think, what are they, six? They're six, yeah. Six or seven. And they, and uh, the wife had re- had just recently told how um, for their family devotions they're doing the beatitudes, and one of the beatitudes, of course, is "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy." And she said that apparently the beatitudes weren't sticking with her kids, because the other day they were driving in the car, and you can imagine if you have three kids in the back seat of a car, there's going to be transgression of personal boundaries, right? Poor Gardner, the one boy, has had transgressed accidentally the boundaries of one of the sisters. And so what she, what she recounts is that that sister, Shannon, had him by the throat <laughs> for his egregious sin. And the other sister, Autumn, was shouting on, No mercy, Shannon! Show him no mercy! <laughs> so contrary to how we are to live. That's what the world does. I noticed one of the headlines this morning was that they had, they had uh, arrested one of the suspects who had beaten the Giants fan at Dodger Stadium. No mercy. All he did was worship, I'm not worship, maybe he did worship, but all he did was cheer for a different baseball team and they nearly killed him. That's the way the world works. The sinful world works. No mercy. But the church is to operate in a very different way. We are to give other people what we have gotten from God. We are to display the reality of the gospel in how we speak and treat and act towards one another. Favoritism is another example of worldliness. It is a wavering between faith and doubt looking at this world instead of the world that is to come. And so James says that mercy triumphs over judgment, which is interesting. That word triumphs is stolen from the world of the arena. It's the, it's the man who is standing over his defeated foe, boasting about he how he has prevailed over this one. We see it all the time with touchdown dances and all that kind of stuff, you know, all this, all this, yeah, awesome, I did it. But James turns it all upside down and he puts mercy winning. Mercy, which is gentle, as opposed to judgment, which is harsh. He says, this is the one that triumphs. This is the one that will stand victorious in the end. Live like it. 
live as people of mercy, not as people of, of judgment, of superficial judgment. We are forgiven for our favoritism, or we may be forgiven of our favoritism and judgmentalism through the work of Christ for us upon the cross. Okay? So all of us, I think, you know, remember back to high school, you did it, right, didn't you? (laughs) This group bad, that group good? Or, man, we still do it now as adults. What a junky car that guy drives. Why can't he drive a nice car? He's bringing down my property values. We do this stuff. Why can't this dude weed? Weed the lawn, man. All of these things. We make these superficial... Maybe they have cancer and they can't get outside. I was just frustrated the other day at someone who didn't weed. I had to remember that. Maybe they're sick. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe there's a reason they can't weed. Our superficial judgment is a sin, but Christ is sufficient for our forgiveness of that sin. But not only that, but Christ works in us so that we will become merciful. He begins to lay siege upon the judgmental aspects of your heart. He begins to tear down the the superficial attitudes that you have. He's at work in there. And He's at work in there so that He can be at work through you to show mercy to those who need it. People that God loves, though the world despises. That God thinks are significant, though the world thinks insignificant. We are to manifest mercy to these people that the world is ostracized. Sometimes it's as simple as just being a friend. Sometimes it's as simple as just standing next to someone. My kids like the Berenstain Bears. And there's, there's uh, one book, okay, teasing. Brother bear teased sister bear mercilessly. And it wasn't until... Too tall, and all of his gang began to tease him that he realized, hmm, maybe that ain't so nice. <laughs> you know? But then there was a new boy in town. And at first, Brother Bear was excited because they were no longer teasing him, but teasing the new boy in town. But then he remembered what it was like. And he was the only one who stood beside the new kid in town said, if you want to fight, we'll fight. Sometimes that's all it is. Standing beside those that the world wants to judge on the basis of its cultural, whimsical, foolish standards. Saying, no, it's wrong. All right. Christians can and we do struggle with favoritism. We judge people based on appearances. And such favoritism is worldly and it's sinful. It denies God's work in people's lives, including our own. But the good news is that Jesus is at work to make all Christians people who love, who show love and show mercy 
toward others who are different or who look different. And so as a result, we can really embrace the rich tapestry of the kingdom only through grace. The only way we can move away from partiality in our own congregation in in any form that it exists is through the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, James uh, probably just cut many of us to the heart. His was a hard word this morning. This was not a feel-good passage. He has just exposed what we tend to think of as a very small sin, what Jerry Bridges would call a respectable sin, but one that is actually the absence of love, (coughs) that which all of the commandments hang upon. And so we need mercy, for we all have committed this sin. And I ask that you would grant us grace, that we might continue to say no to this form of unrighteousness and to live as people of love and mercy, that we might embrace one another despite differences in age, gifts, interests, race, and more. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lord of glory who has made us his body. Amen.